Welcome to the month of December. I imagine for some of us, uh, it's shocking that the year is almost over. For some of us, we can't believe there's still four weeks left. So, um, wherever you find yourself on that spectrum this morning, I, I pray that the Lord would be very kind to you today and that He would give us much help this morning in the Sunday School Hour, as we turn our attention from uh, the th- a theology of the body to a theology of the soul. Uh, let me pray, and then we will uh, rehearse once more our, our theme verses for the class, and then we'll get to work. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day, this Lord's Day that you have once more so graciously given to us, that we might gather for worship today, that we might gather beforehand to, uh, to meet in this, this Sunday school hour, that uh, we might devote our, our minds and our hearts and our wills to, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that as we talk this morning, as we consider uh, this first aspect of our the, uh, theology of, of the soul, the, our, the immaterial aspect of us, that we wouldn't see it as disconnected and unrelated to the material aspect of our, of our existence, uh, but we would see it as a, a necessary, indissoluble aspect of it, uh, re- closely connected, Lord. And I pray that you would uh, give us much help and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, tell us this. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And then Paul in Acts 20.24 similarly tells us that, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so, holding those two texts in our hearts, this need to strive, to press forward, to press on, to to not give up, to be faithful to the end, we are seeking once more to to ask, how do we avoid failure? Um, Failure in an ultimate sense, right? As sinners, we fail every day. Uh, But how do we avoid a failure of to a failure to fulfill our God-given obligations that exist, that comes upon us because of circumstances in our lives and choices that we make, which is our, are tended by increasingly negative, often excruciatingly negative consequences in our relationships with God, with others, and with ourselves. And so that's our effort, our aim at beating burnout. And so this morning, we're going to talk about a theology of the soul, beginning with a theology of identity. 
if the most important question in the world is, who is God? And I think you could argue that it is up there as the most important question. A second question to ask would be, who am I? How we answer that question, how you answer that question, not just at a philosophical level, not just at the level of what you might write on a quiz or a test or what exactly you might say if someone were to ask you that. But what do you functionally, how do you functionally answer that question every day, practically? What is your Belief. What do you actually think when you woke up this morning? At some point, whether consciously or subconsciously, you asked and answered the question, who am I? How did you answer it? Was it in line with what you might say if asked on the street? Or in a Sunday school class? Or was it not? How we answer this question impacts our our self-image, it impacts our health, it impacts our spirituality, our ethics, it impacts your roles and your relationships, your uh, career, it impacts your view of the past, your view of the present, and your view of the future. A right answer and ongoing right answers to this question lead to flourishing. Wrong answers lead to withering. So what, what would we say? So let's not talk functionally for a minute here. We're Christians here in this room this morning, so theologically, briefly, what would we say? How, how might people answer? How might a Christian answer the question, who are you? What's that? Child of God? Yep. What else? Made in his image? Yep. Image bearer. Created by God. Loved by God. Right? Follower of Christ. Yep. Right? That's, and we could go on, but those, that's, those things are true. Theologically, we would grant, and many other things, that we are children of God, that we're loved by God, that we're made by Him, sustained by Him, ruled by Him, that we are disciples of, followers of the Lord Jesus. But functionally, we don't always think that way. And I think I want to offer to you a few scenarios. And uh, uh, again, um, these aren't... Uh, original to me. I basically copied them word for word out of uh, Murray's book. Um, David Murray, again, that book, Reset, that we're, we're, we're looking at. Um, he, he gives these wrong answers, these wrong identities that we tend to, to build for ourselves. Um, for fun, I did change some of the, the names that he, he gave in there. Um, so uh, first, we have Alonzo the Adulterer. Here's his identity. After his adultery, Alonzo's most dominant self-image is this. I am an adulterer. Despite confessing and repenting of this sin and seeking and being granted his wife's forgiveness, this identity frames and infects his relationship 
with everyone, with God, with his wife, and with his children. It drains him of motivation and energy for taking even the most basic service opportunities at his local church. His most pressing image of himself is as this grotesque, sinful person who has broken covenant vows. But then you also have Fred, the failure. Fred tried to plant a church. And he learned the hard way that church planting is very hard work. After five years of following all the basic strategies of, that other successful church planters had used, he bought all the right books, he went to all the right conferences, he, had all the, he, was, at, he was at all the right meetings. All he had to show for it was 20 regular attenders or so, including... Uh, eight of which were his own children. Seven years in, it was just him, his family, and one other. Shortly after that, the church closed its doors. He was, however, shortly given a call, shortly after that, given a call to pastor a medium-sized rural church that practically no one had ever heard of. There, he is appreciated and supported His family is stable and even flourishing, generally. The church has, they have several baptisms every year. The church continues to grow, slowly, but seemingly surely. But all that Fred can think about is the failure of the church plant. He doesn't talk to anyone in his old network of pastors anymore. He doesn't go to conferences anymore. He finds little joy in the ongoing work of God in the church he now pastors. His whole identity has been wiped out. You have Simon the Strong. Growing up, Simon had a a driven and determined dad. Simon's dad had high standards for his kids. Weaknesses of any kind were viewed as shameful disgraces upon the family. When he was sick as a child, Simon would be discouraged or even prevented from taking certain medications. He was pushed out the door every day to go to school, no matter how he felt. Suck it up was the informal family motto. As an adult, Simon would be described by others as strong, a driver, a hard worker. Now in his mid 40s, he finds himself struggling to maintain the same level of energy and uh, productivity that he had in his 20s and his 30s. He he doesn't feel as sharp as he used to be. He finds it increasingly difficult to get out of bed early each morning. He finds it increasingly easier to go to bed earlier each night. What he could accomplish in an, an hour before now takes him an hour and 20 minutes or an hour and a half or two hours, depending on what it is. He gets heart palpitations and chest pain from time to time. But he keeps going. He keeps driving. He keeps pushing. But he's constantly fatigued and frustrated. And we have Penelope, the perfectionist. For Penelope, everything just has to be just perfect. She came home from high school once crying because she'd made a 94 on an exam. And her parents didn't help. They asked, well, what happened to the other 6%? She allowed then, over the course of the following ten years, her perfectionism 
turned her into a hypercritical wife and mother, friend and church member, neighbor and coworker. Everyone around her walks in eggshells because they know a, a rebuke and a criticism will be sent their way at the slightest mistake. But Penelope isn't just critical of others, she's most critical of herself. Even when she's praised by others, she finds something in her own work to complain and berate herself about. Lastly, we have Sarah the sinner. Sarah attends a church that talks about sin a lot. Justification, adoption, sanctification, forgiveness, glorification, and other important doctrines are rarely mentioned. If they are, they feel like they are add-ons to fiery tirades about how awful people are, what's wrong with the church and the world, and why everything is just the worst. She has almost no sense of God's love or of being his child. She sees herself simply as sinner. The future for Sarah is an extremely, even exclusively bleak affair in her mind. These people and many others have lives and identities that have been stolen by circumstances and choices. For the sake of discussion, they're all loved by Jesus. They're all in union with Him through faith. But this fundamental identity as follower of Jesus, loved by God, this fundamental identity has been replaced and imbalanced through incomplete identities. In some cases, completely wrong and false identities. Each of these people are bombarded, rather each of these people is bombarded by intruding thoughts that speak lies about who they are. So rhetorical question, do you find yourself in any of these descriptions? Maybe not. Maybe you're Harry Hollywood, Carl the coward, Frank Facebooker, Miriam the mother, Wilma the widow, or Oscar the orphan. Or maybe you have multiple identities combating for front and center stage depending on where you are or who you're with. So we have to ask ourselves again the question, who am I? Functionally, every day when you wake up, we ask and answer the question, "Who, who am I? One thought that I think is really important to to go ahead and interject here. We're more than one thing, right? Sarah the sinner, Alonzo the adulterer, Penelope the perfectionist, Simon the strong. they, They all make the fatal mistake of seeing themselves essentially as just one thing. There's one thing about me that defines me, but there are many things about us that define who we are. Some things are and ought to be more central than others, but we're more than one thing. For instance, I am a Christian, a husband, a father, a friend, a pastor. I am reformed and confessional. I am a student, a reader, a son, a brother, an uncle, a grandson, a dreamer, a finisher, And I am impatient. 
to name a few things. I tend to, to overlook details. I love food, namely steak. I, I like to exercise, but I'm not as committed to it as I want to be. I hate conflict. And sometimes I fail to say things as clearly as I want because I'm trying to avoid conflict. Right? All of those things are true about me. Some of them probably to a greater degree than others. And there are other things that I could mention that I might be right about, I might be wrong about. But when we can just take a step back and say, oh, I'm more than one thing. There doesn't have to, there's not just one thing about me that is the only thing about me. But there are things that should principally define you. Right? As a, I am a Christian, it's much more important than being a dreamer, right? Than liking to exercise or enjoying a ribeye. So from this point of view, understanding that we need to think more broadly about our identities than just one thing, we can begin to work to uncover our identities. Um, David Murray offers several helps. He says that we need to reorder our priorities. We need to expand what is incomplete. We need to fill in gaps. We need to prosecute falsehoods, reframe failures, accept change, and anticipate the future. So, thinking about each of those in the time that we have left. So, one of, what's the, so one of the first things, right, we ask, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I ask, who are you? Right, so, rhetorical question, right? What, when, when you're asked, and, and I know we kind of did this exercise earlier, but think, like, really, when you really ask, when you really think about it, what is the message that you preach to yourself every day about who you are? What are the first things that come to mind? And what are the last things that come to mind? Or the things that almost never come to mind? My guess is that for many of us, not this is probably not even true at all times for you, but maybe there are seasons of your life when you realize that the order is all out of whack. Right? What if I had said, right, and oftentimes practically this is how it goes. I had said something like, who am I? Well, I am a person that hates conflict and sometimes doesn't say the things that need to be said because I don't want to make someone mad. I tend to overlook details and so I, I, can, I miss important things and I mess things up. I rarely, I don't exercise as much as I wish that I did. I tend to, to use food, as I talked about last week, in sinful ways to avoid uh, boredom or to deal with stress. I am impatient. Oh, and by the way, I, I love Jesus and I have a family and friends and a church and all that. But, but it's different. It's different. Where do I begin and where do I end? Or sometimes, where, if I, do I fail to, to even acknowledge those defining things? What are you allowed to define you? So we need, to, we need to reorder our priorities. Do you think about yourself first in terms of your spiritual state? Right? Are you in Christ or out of Christ? 
That's every person in the world is either in Christ or you're a Christian or you're not. So when you think of yourself, how often is the first thought tend to be beloved? Your spiritual state. Then your spiritual character. Is that what comes next? Am I a mature Christian? Am I a maturing Christian? Am I an immature Christian? I'm still a Christian. I'm still loved by God. But there are areas of strengths and weaknesses that I need to grapple with. And your, then your relationships. What about your relationships with others? And which ones are the ones you think about first? Is it you think about your relationships with the people at work or people at whatever hobby thing that you do or club that you're a part of? Is it your family? Is it your neighbors? Is it this church? What, what, what are the order of relationships that are important to you and what do you make of those? Or, or is it the other way around? Do you think of yourself primarily in terms of, of work and the things that you do and only maybe later when you get a chance come to ask yourself questions about who you are? Um, I want to look at Ephesians 1 real quick. But anybody have a, a thought on that? I, I've been just monologuing for a while, so I want to give you a second to... Chime in if you want. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. I think there are a few different approaches that we can take to, to, to making important changes in our life, but, but certainly one of them is what do you set your mind on, right? There are, con- there, there are multiple repeated exhortations in the Scripture, right, about what, we, what you think about. What you, do you set your mind on Christ? Colossians 3, Philippians 4, do you... Um, do you think on that which is lovely and honorable and true and just? Do you, do you think rightly? Because as you begin to devote your mind, your thinking to something, what happens? That begins to affect how you feel. Right? If you think, I am a sinner, and you really think about it long enough, how are you going to feel? Like a sinner. <laughs> right? You are not going to feel great. Which can be helpful if you know how to interject the thought, but I'm also a saint and a sufferer, and I'm loved by God. But if you don't know how to do that, or you're not willing to do that, that feeling of I'm a sinner begins to weigh you down into despair. And so you end up then probably making certain choices that are in line with that identity and that feeling. And so what we think about, but right, if I commit myself to say I am adopted into God's family, right? And so here's, we'll kind of bring this into the, to Ephesians 1. So how, do, how might we do this? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and following, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So as I read this, I want you to listen for who you are. Who are you? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through, the, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose in which he set forth in which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an, inher- an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, a few things. Who, who are you, according to Paul in Ephesians 1? You're chosen, adopted, blessed, redeemed, loved, sealed with His Holy Spirit, purchased by the blood of Christ. We, we have incomplete thoughts and, 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 and incomplete truths that we tell ourselves. Yeah, so often it's, I'm a, I'm a failure, I'm, 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 I'm wicked, I'm gross, I'm disgusting. Those are true. But that's the, the only thing that's true about you. And now other times we tend to say, well, I'm great, I'm wonderful, I'm strong, and I'm, I'm very effective at all the things I do, and I'm just a wonderful friend, and everyone is better off for knowing me. We might, we might not, we probably don't, consci- we don't think those thoughts as consciously as we do the other ones, but they're there. And here we, you know, one thing that this tells us is that, well, I needed redemption. I'm a person who needs redemption, who needed the blood of Jesus to be spilled for me. So it keeps us from despair, but it also keeps us from, from arrogance. I love the paradigm I referenced it earlier that you are a sinner, a sufferer, and a saint. Not necessarily in that order, but those three things are very true about you. And I, when I am in counseling with people, I, that's, I try to bring that up often, is that often we're in balance. Maybe you think of yourself only as a sinner or only as a sufferer. Usually, maybe not, we don't usually think of ourselves only as saints, but Right, but those things are all, all true of us for for the Christian, right? And even for the non-Christian, he's still a sinner, he's still a sufferer, and he's still an image bearer. Right, so not just something bad that some sinful being that suffers in the world, but sinful being that suffers in a world who's made by God. So. We have to reorder our priorities, in, expand our, the, the, our incomplete thoughts, fill in the gaps. But we also have to persecute, persecute rather, prosecute falsehoods. Now you might need the help of a loved one to do this well, and you certainly need the help of Scripture to do this well, but are there aspects of your self-perception that are simply wrong? You hear people going around, that they'll say, I'm just the worst. You ever, you ever a child that's ever done that? A little over, overly sensitive kid? I'm just the worst. No one loves me. Well, that's just wrong. I mean, someone in the world has, is the worst, right? Like, there is, like, someone out here that, like, in the world somewhere is the worst person. You're probably not him. It's definitely a man. But probably not him. So what's, what is wrong? What is patently false about your sense of self? Right? 
a thought that occurred to me this week is, so what is the ninth commandment? Yeah, ninth. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor, right? If I am to love my neighbor as I love myself, I shouldn't bear false witness against myself either. And if I lie to myself, believing lies about myself because of an unwillingness or inability to hear the truth from God's word and his messengers of grace when you're sent my way to tell me things about me, whether they be good things or hard things. Let me not set those in contrast because sometimes those are the same. Easy things or hard things to hear. So we prosecute falsehoods and we reframe failures. Right? Reframing failures is an important component as we allow ourselves to look at the bigger picture. We discover lessons that we've learned from our failures. Have you ever learned a lesson from failing? Oftentimes it's failure that produces a greater lesson than success. One of my favorite failures in my entire life occurred when I was in the 8th grade. Some of you may know this story. I don't imagine most of you would. I've told it recently, but so if you heard it recently, then you have about, you know, two minutes to tune out here. So in the 8th grade, I was partnered up with a friend to do, a, we had a social science fair project that we had to do. And Jordan and I, uh, I think we chose it. I don't think the topic was chosen for us, but we got to do our project on the New Deal, um, FDR's New Deal, right? His his great uh, escape to try to get us out of the depression. And we made this project. And let's be honest, I didn't. We didn't work super hard on it, but there was a. I remember by the end, we felt very accomplished. And we took it up to Georgia Southern. We took a field trip, and um, and we presented in this thing. And the you know, judges came around, and they were asking us questions and all this stuff. And when they got to us, they, we presented, and then we were just so like, I mean, I mean, we probably high-fived at the end of it. We just were very confident. And I remember one of the judges saying, so if the country was in a depression and no one had any money, where did he get the money to pay these workers in all of these new jobs that he was creating? And I thought, that is a question we should have asked well before now, we just stared at him, deers in headlights, had no idea how, and honestly, I still don't know, but um, I do know, actually, and it's a sad story, but it was this moment of failure, and, you know, it's, it's made me the great capitalist that I am today because of that failure. Um, my, my love for, for FDR quickly waned. Uh, after that, but failure is important in our lives, and it teaches us something when we're met with something that we we don't understand or we can't do, and we we have to look up and say, "Lord, you alone are sufficient." We also have to accept change. World, the world is changing. You're changing every day. Life is changing. And as it changes, one of the important things that you have to be able to do is to look at the trajectory of your life and not just the last 10 minutes. Right? In counseling, I also talk about this a lot, is that when, especially, and it doesn't really matter, whether you, whether you are feeling proud or feeling 
like you're in the dumps, you have to be able to look beyond just the last 10 minutes, right? So ask yourself, do you love Jesus more than you did when you start when we started this class 40 minutes ago? Well, it was like 35 minutes ago. Sorry, Dan. Um, do you love Jesus more now than you did then? I have no idea if any of us could honestly answer that question. I have no idea if I love Jesus more now than I did 35 or 40 minutes ago. Do I love Jesus more than I did yesterday? Maybe. I Last week? Jan- December of 2021? I, I think so. But what about December of 2016? Do I love Jesus more now than I did then? Quite confident the answer is yes. What about 2006? Do I love Jesus more now than I did then? Yeah. Right? So is the trajectory of your life and the changes that have happened led you to be a a, a deeper lover of Jesus, a deeper lover of your neighbors? You can't tell that by just looking at the last few days or a few months, maybe even a few years, right? You might say, if you are seasoned enough, you say, I don't know, the last decade, kind of a wash. But the last, you know, many decades... Not so much. So we need to be able to accept change, and we need to be able to anticipate the future. And so we'll, we'll, begin, we'll end here. So 1 John chapter 3. Really bad at like flipping and turning pages, and so I'm always impressed when I see people who I don't have, I don't have their Bibles marked at all. No, no uh, this string here is not anywhere existent, and they just find it. Like, I know where it is, but... I can only turn like a page or two at a time. First uh, John 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so do you have the future? And I don't just mean the future of your life in this present world of the next decade or 20 years in mind. Do you, do you have hope for that? I mean, that's important and it's good that we, we think about that future. But the future beyond that, the future when Christ appears and all of the ups and downs, the the hardships of your life, the, the, the bad circumstances and the sinful choices, the unwise choices, the inexplicable choices that you've made at times, they're all bringing you to this moment in the future when you will stand before Jesus, see Him as He is, and you shall be like Him, Christian. And as you hope in Him now, pure, you are purifying yourself as Christ is pure. And so, when we think about our identity, we don't just think about, right, there's not just who we were or who we think we are now or who we're going to be in a few days, but in a billion years, who will you be? Now you'll be sinless. No more aches and pains. No more fractured relationships. No more sorrows. No more grief. No more sin. 
just love and glory and holiness forever and ever in increasingly vast measures for eternity. So let me give you three questions as we, as we end here. Three questions to ask yourself when you have intruding thoughts barge in to, to lie to you. Is this thought true? That's the first question. Is it true? Is this a true thing that I'm thinking? Second, is it, is it helpful? Right? Is it helpful maybe in the sense of is it helpful to think about it now? Right? Maybe it's three in the morning and you start thinking about something. You're like, well, that's technically true, but I can't do nothing about it right now. Is it true? Is it helpful? And is it complete? What piece of the puzzle, what piece of the pie am I missing here by this thought? What is this emphasizing to an imbalance? And if the answer is true, if it's true, helpful, and complete, then think away. Dwell upon it. Set your mind and heart upon it and your will. Live it out. It's great. But if it's not true, toss it aside. If it's not helpful, toss it aside for now or forever, depending on why it's not helpful. And if it's not complete, add to it. So what I want to encourage you to do, and I'm not gonna, you're not turning anything in next week, but uh, some homework. So I, I think it would be good for, for each of us, take the week, take some time. And I would, I would suggest, if you can, like this afternoon maybe, just so that um, you don't get to Monday morning and off the ground running and forget. Write out one sentence. Who are you? Probably harder than you think, but who are you? And then thinking about that after that one sentence, maybe go back and, and write out like the list that I gave you. I'm a Christian husband, pastor, father, all those things. What other things describe you? What is your, your whole list? And it could be quite long. And then apply these questions to, to each of those things. Is this, true? Is this actually true about me? Is it helpful for me to have this in my self-perception? And is, it, is, this, is this complete? Or do I need to add another word to this list to balance it out? So, we are out of time, but any... Yeah, amen. What do, you, what do you think about who are you, right? And then back to, you know, full circle, Maggie, thank you, right? If the second most important question in the world is who are you, the, the question before that is who is God, right? So let me, let me pray. Father, thanks for your word, and I pray that it would prove helpful and useful for us in living out the Christian life. I pray for us now as we go and get our kids and come back here for worship, and I pray that you would meet with us, commune with us, that you would draw us uh, to yourself, and uh, Lord, we, we love you imperfectly, asking that you would help us to increasingly um, love you more, all the more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.